In World War Two, my dad's regiment in the army went out to fight a battle and very few of them were alive. My dad didn't actually go out to the front at that time because he was in hospital injured. He escaped the death that came to so many of his fellow soldiers because he was in hospital. And he would sometimes look back on that and comment how that being in hospital injured was so crucial to him. That possibly saved his life. I suppose it was crucial for me too, because if his life hadn't been saved then, I wouldn't be here. For those who are in any doubt, I was born after the Second World War. <laughs> I think that's probably obvious to most of you. Uh, sometimes my children seem to wonder if I was... Was there electricity, they say to me, when you were, when you were little? Anyway, it's an example of a crucial event for my life, even though it happened long before, and a crucial event in his life. I wonder what events have been crucial in your life? What events have been crucial for you? Now, I use the word crucial intentionally. Do you know what crucial means? Crucial means decisive. It means something significant depends on it. It's an interesting word because... Crucial comes from the Latin word for cross. It means cross-like. Shows how Christianity has influenced even our language. This word crucial, well, that word is there because the cross is the most crucial event in history. The most cross-like event. It's the crucial event for humanity. And it's the crucial event for your life. Our lives depend on it. Now, of course, when I say the cross, I'm not meaning the wooden object. I'm meaning the person who was on that cross and what he was achieving. So this morning, we're simply going to focus on that crucial event. We're going to focus on the Lord Jesus himself. And my aim is to build your confidence in Jesus. Because Jesus is the saviour you need, you must have confidence in him. Because Jesus is the one who keeps us going in the Christian life. We must have confidence in him. Because Jesus is the one, well, we won't run the race if we don't have our eyes fixed on him. So let's fix our eyes on him this morning. Let's consider him on the cross. Would you turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 and verses 44 to 49. 44 to 49. Here we have three breakages, three breakages. Now, I must admit, I'm not very happy with the word breakages. It's not the best word. But here we have three things that get broken or maybe better ruptured in verses 44 to 49. Can you spot them? Children, have a look in verses 44 to, well, 44 to 46, actually. Can you spot three things that get broken? The first one is the sun in verse 44 and 45. The sun gets broken. Children think of the lovely sunny days we've been having recently. Bright sunshine. But there have been some, like last Sunday afternoon, when a storm has blown in rather suddenly and it has darkened over. Even the bright sunny day has darkened over. But, but it's only gone a bit dark. I was up on top of Beacon Hill last Sunday afternoon and it was bright and sunny. And then, yes, the, the black clouds came over. But it only went a little dark. 
Imagine a bright sunny day. In fact, it's midday and it's in the Middle East where it really is bright and sunny. And then it goes as dark as night. And it does it for three hours. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. That means midday. They started that they where they counted at what we call 6 a.m. It was now about midday and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. In other words, 3 p.m. What's going on? It can't be an eclipse. Do you know why not? Well, it was Passover and Passover is at full moon and full moon means the moon's on the wrong side of planet Earth to give an eclipse. And more simply, eclipses don't last three hours. What is it? It's described as if the sun got broken, verse 45, for the sun stopped shining. As if it actually went out. We don't know what physically happened. But we do know this is fulfilment of prophecy. Something Luke is particularly keen to point out in his gospel. Fulfilment of prophecy. So, for example, Amos 8 verse 9 says... In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Or Zephaniah 1 verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of darkness. And there you've got three prophecies. Did you notice they all refer to darkness? They all refer to a particular day, a special day, a day when God will act decisively. And they all refer to judgment on sin, God's anger on sin being poured out. We don't know how it went dark. We do know why it went dark. God was acting. God was judging sin. This was God's crucial event in history. He was bringing in his kingdom and he was doing it by pouring out his anger on sin and pouring it out on his son. I said God was bringing in his kingdom, but how could God have a kingdom in a world full of sinners when there's no one who deserves to be in any kingdom of his? Well, it's by God pouring out his judgment on his son the king, who was taking, taking all of that judgment for the people of his kingdom so they could be forgiven. There's the first thing broken, the sun. Let's move on to the second thing broken, the temple. Verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, children, can you see any curtains in, in your room where you are now? I expect most of you have got curtains, haven't you, that you can see even at this moment. So you know what a curtain is, but this curtain was nothing like any curtain you're looking at now. It was about 10 metres high. I'm not very good at estimating, but I reckon 10 metres is taller than your house, probably. It was about 10 metres wide. It was embroidered in rich threads of red and purple and blue and it was about the thickness of an adult's hand or a bit more i doubt your curtains are that thick 
thick, richly embroidered material, 10 metres by 10 metres. And at this time in the afternoon, the priests would be busy in the temple, getting ready the evening sacrifices. They had a lot of work to do. They had, we might not like to think about this, but they had animals to kill, animals to get ready. And there they are busy when suddenly they hear a great tearing sound. And then to their horror, through a great gap in the curtain, they can see into the Holy of Holies, that place where no one is allowed to go, except the high priest once a year. Now that would frighten, well it would frighten you to have this curtain rip for no, un, un, for no reason, but it's far more than that. It would frighten them that they can see into that place where God lives and no one can go. No one can look at God and survive. What's going on? What was going on? Fellow Christians, I expect you've got an answer, haven't you? You've probably got an answer, and your answer probably is, through Jesus dying, the way to God was being made open. That curtain represented that you couldn't access God, but it was being torn open, and now... Oh, we have bold access to God. Well, you're right, and that's true. You can find that in Hebrews 10, verse 20. But I would say, let's not jump there too quickly. Let's remember, we're not reading Hebrews, we're reading Luke. And Luke is more interested in history. Across his two books, Luke and Acts, he's keen to show us God moving from Jewish religion centred around the temple to Christianity that's centred around Jesus, the new temple. Luke has given considerable space back in chapters 20 and 21. Some of you might vaguely remember this from months ago when we were actually meeting at church. In those chapters, we were hearing about how temple religion had corrupted and was going to be brought to an end. Luke gives considerable space to that. And so here, in a very simple phrase, he tells us the curtain temple was torn. The temple is being judged. Jesus said it will be brought to an end and here it is being brought to an end. It's being made unusable. You can't go into a building with the Holy of Holies gaping open, exposing you to God's dwelling. You just can't do that. Think of it a bit like this. Have you ever cut a credit card in half? Adults, I'm sure at some point you've cut a credit card in half. What are you doing? You're making it unusable. And when do you do that? Oh, you do it when you've got a new one. That one's expired and you've got a new one. You cut the old one in half so no one can use it. Well, there's the clue to God cutting the old temple curtain. That temple has expired. There's a new one coming. There's going to be a new temple. And that leads us to the third breakage. The third breakage is in verse 46. And here it is, the Son of God is broken. The first two breakages picture the third one. Let's think back to the sun. Verse 45 says, for the sun stopped shining. What would happen if the sun stopped shining? Children who go to Hollywell School, uh, last week was your space week. I don't know if you're following the school plan for work to do, but the school plan was a week about space. So, do you know the planets? 
Do you know what the temperature is on Neptune? And if you don't actually know, could you guess what it's like? Very hot, very cold, somewhere in the middle? The answer is on Neptune, it's about minus 200 degrees centigrade. In case you're in doubt, that's very cold. Why is it so cold in Neptune? Oh, because it's very far from the sun. And yet, actually, even Neptune gets some of the sun's heat and rays getting to it. So what would it be like if the sun went out? Well, everything would die. No life could survive on planet Earth. We utterly depend on the sun. I presume that if the sun went out, that would do something to the gravitational pull of planet Earth, because it would do something to the mass of the sun. So that, that surely will do something to the orbit of planet Earth and all the other planets. And this is getting beyond my simple science, but I'm just trying to point out it is impossible for the sun to go out, or at least for it to go out and the solar system to keep going. We totally depend on the sun. We might be mystified by verse 45, for the sun stopped shining. But we should be far more mystified by verse 46. I think this is the point. The sun going out is just a little pointer to there's a greater mystery in verse 46. The son of God goes out. He stops breathing. He's dead. How can that happen? The universe needs the Son of God more than planet Earth needs the Son. Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by his powerful word. He upholds it all. So how can it keep going if he's dead? How can the planet keep going with the Son of God not keeping going? How can the source of life die? How can the giver of breath, we read in verse 46... Breathe his last. How can God become man and be body and spirit and then that spirit be torn from the body? We're paddling at the edges of a very deep mystery. There's so much here beyond our understanding. We are being told, look, your salvation depends on something more drastic, more powerful, more mysterious than the sun stopping shining and the temple being torn in two. We are being prompted to bow and worship. Let's think again about, I've said, the first two breakages picture the third one. So the source of life and light, the sun, stopped shining. The place of meeting God, the temple, was torn up and made unusable. Because the Son of God, who is the source of life and light, and who is our temple God with us, is dead. There he hangs, dead, unable to do a single thing, just a cold body. And so we are supposed to do verse 48. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. We're supposed to go away mystified, 
and unsatisfied and feeling in the darkness. What's going on here? Is, is, is everything just grinding to a halt? We're supposed to feel like that until the sun rises on a new day in chapter 24. And Jesus rises from the dead and new life comes and we have a new temple, Jesus, through whom we can know God and boldly speak to him. You see, our English word crucial, I would say, actually isn't quite right. Our word crucial, yes, in some ways it's a wonderful word because it says we depend on the cross. That's the centre of all history. But Luke would modify that. Because Luke never wants us to see the cross without the resurrection. He wants us to put the two together and say they are crucial. Cross and resurrection. It's because Jesus has died and risen that we have life. The sun hasn't gone out. And we have a temple. The old isn't just torn up. We've got a new one. Now, I've missed out so far the prayer of Jesus in verse 46. I know I've done that. It's very significant, but we'll come back to it later. First of all, we're going to move from three breakages to three witnesses. In verses 47 to 49, we have three witnesses. And Luke is very keen to emphasise they are witnesses. Have a look at verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened... Excuse me. Notice that seeing what had happened. Praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Then we have another set of witnesses. Verse 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. And then a third lot of witnesses. Verse 49. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Do you notice for each personal group of people, Luke is very definite, they saw with their own eyes. They were witnesses of the facts of these events. Witnesses of the facts. What what was the point of Luke writing about the death of Jesus? Was it devotional to move us? No, not really. Was it theological to instruct us on the meaning? Well, a little bit. But what it was mainly was historical. To persuade us it really happened. That's the main thing. You can get that actually. Luke is is completely straight with us about this in the very start of his gospel. Back in chapter one, he says, I'm writing to you a man called Theophilus. And he says in verse four, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He says, I'm writing so you know this is real history. Luke is keen to point out there were people who really saw these things. There was a Roman centurion. He was probably a hard man. He was used to crucifying people. It was an ordinary day's work for him. But this one he says, was not ordinary. And then there was a crowd. They liked to turn out for an execution. They liked to be entertained by some blood and gore. Sadly, down through history, crowds have turned out for executions. But what they saw couldn't be brushed off 
as just a spectacle to gawp at. And then there's the people who knew Jesus. And interestingly, Luke particularly mentions the women. He's keen to point out Jesus' involvement in women who were often looked down on. But here particularly, well, they're the women who the day after next are going to go to his tomb and find it empty. And they'd seen him die. They'd seen it with their own eyes. Luke's second volume that we call Acts recalls the disciples preaching and they were able to appeal to people. You know about Jesus. You saw what he did. You heard about his death and we saw him risen from the dead. Luke's saying these are facts of history. Well, if you're a sceptical person, and it's not wrong to be sceptical, it is wrong to be cynical, but it's not wrong to be sceptical, you might say, well, anyone can make those claims. Decades after the event, when, when no one knows what really happened, anyone can claim, oh, yes, there were eyewitnesses, when they're long dead and no one can ask them. Well, that's a big subject, and I'm not going to go into a long talk on that now, we can't. But I do want to answer it a bit. Because Luke is writing to persuade us that this is real. So it's, it's with the right attitude, Luke's attitude, to answer that question at least a bit. I've got a book here called Can We Trust the Gospels, written by a, um, an academic at Cambridge University. Can We Trust the Gospels? And this book is, is unlike a lot of books on can we rely on the Bible? Because it looks at the little details in the gospel that are easily overlooked. I wonder if you've watched TV police dramas and a suspect has been brought in. There he is with his solicitor and there are two policemen interviewing him or her. And what does, if that person is guilty... What do they keep saying when they're asked the question? They keep saying, no comment. And they're asked another question, no comment. And didn't this happen? No comment. And to me, oh, it makes you sound so guilty. You think, why do they say no comment? Why don't they at least give some sort of answer? Because you sound so guilty saying no comment. Oh, they do it because they've been advised by their solicitor. If you make up something, if you try to cover up something, you, you so easily get caught out by the little details you wouldn't have thought of. Everything you say is going to be recorded and the police are going to pick over your statement and they will see what little details don't add up. They'll see what little details that you just mentioned without even noticing them can be disproved. They don't match up with reality, with other evidence. Well, the Gospels have been picked over for 2,000 years. The Gospels have been scrutinised by hostile people for 2,000 years. And this book looks at those sorts of little details you get wrong if you're making it up. And it shows Luke and the other writers stand up so well to scrutiny. They have good evidence that they were written when they claim to have been written right back soon after it all happened, and by eyewitnesses. If you'd like a copy of the book, get in touch with me. I'm sure I can get you a copy for yourself or, or to borrow.
Luke has been telling us they were witnesses of the facts of the events. But he's also telling us they were witnesses of the significance of the events. Chapter 23 gives us three witnesses who look at Jesus and say what they think of this man being killed. One of them is our centurion we've just been hearing about. And the centurion is is crystal clear what he thinks about Jesus. Verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Better translated, surely this was an innocent man. He's innocent. He doesn't deserve to have died. Another witness was hanging next to Jesus. He was also being executed. He was a criminal. And he watched Jesus as Jesus died alongside him. And his conclusion was, verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. Again, he's innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. And another witness who tells us what he thought of Jesus was, ironically, the judge who sent him off to be executed and yet gave this verdict on him. Verse 14. Verse 14, Pilate, the judge, says, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Now, do you see what Luke is trying to tell us? Or better put, do you see what God is managing to tell us through Luke? Jesus' death is the crucial event in history. It's as dramatic as the sun going out. Jesus' death is a true event. Luke could write and claim eyewitness evidence. And Jesus' death is an innocent death. This man doesn't deserve to die. That takes us back to the prayer I skipped over. Do you remember there was a prayer from Jesus in verse 46? Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is praying words from Psalm 31. And Psalm 31 is all about a righteous man suffering. Psalm 31 is all about an innocent man being attacked by enemies and not deserving it. Luke has examined the evidence. He's put together the eyewitness statements and he's found the death of Jesus is a real event. The death of Jesus was undeserved by him. The death of Jesus was being done for others. He's innocent, but he's taking our guilt. He's righteous, but he's taking our unrighteousness. He deserved life, but he's taking our deserved death. He's offering himself as a sacrifice. Do you see a little hint of that? Well, it's more than a little hint in his prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the offering of a sacrifice. It's the way for us to be forgiven. Don't pity this Jesus. No, don't pity him. Don't see it all as a tragic mistake. We're supposed to look back and learn from a tragic mistake. No, Jesus is doing this. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's in control. 
And he's come to be the saviour who seeks and saves the lost. And that was the ultimate act of saving the lost. He's offering himself to God as a sacrifice. This extraordinary death of the Son of God is crucial, it's true, and it's done for others. If this isn't what you are relying on as your hope for life and death, if he isn't the one you're trusting in as your saviour, if this good news doesn't grip you and set the priorities for your life, well, there's evidence here you've really got to consider seriously. You've got to give an answer for this. How do you account for this extraordinary book, so well evidenced, with its eyewitness accounts? Will you look into it seriously? Will you approach it with, a, with an open mind? Luke has given us evidence it's true. He's shown us it's amazing that the Son of God should breathe his last. And he's told us it's good news. He died for others. Do you know that he died for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you your word is rich. Thank you your word is coherent. It all works together and fits together so well. Thank you it's the basis for our faith. And thank you it shows us Jesus, the author of our faith. So please may what we've seen of him this morning increase our faith. May it make us strong, firm and steadfast. May it bow us down in humility. Uh, here are mysteries beyond us and may it raise us up with joy. Here is such a loving saviour. And Father, may the Holy Spirit take the word of God we've heard and use it to persuade, to persuade anyone who has not yet run to the Lord Jesus to be safely in him. Please persuade them, not just that this is true, but this is what they need. And they can take hold of this saviour and be safe in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.